Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Want a podcast? Got a podcast? Then check out Launchpad DM, powered by Podcast One. Launchpad DM is a totally free platform and service for anyone who wants to podcast, offering unlimited hosting and access to a dashboard with all of your show's analytics. You own and control everything, including subscribers. And it is a great discovery tool to help people find your podcast. You may even get invited to join the official Podcast One roster with even more perks, like access to producers, marketers, sales teams, and more. Sign up today at launchpaddm.com. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the first of the Division Capsule podcasts. For those of you who are new to these, welcome. They are a combination off-season review and regular season preview for a single five-team division. The first one we're doing is the Northwest, and part of the reason why we're starting with the Northwest is because I have two holdover guests that are both excellent and are very used to the format, so we were able to move, not quickly because it's a long podcast, but move through all of the content that we needed to get through for this fascinating division. And my guests are David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz, creator of the Locked On Sports Network, and Adam Maris of Denver Stiffs and host of Locked On Nuggets. And we had a lot of ground to cover. I mean, these were some very active teams, both buying and selling, depending on circumstances. And that led to, and we all like to talk, so that led to an an hour 45 plus podcast that I, I genuinely love episode is brought to you by betonline.ag use that podcast one promo code for a 50 percent welcome bonus great episode great kickoff to the division capsule podcasts and i hope you enjoy it thank you so much for coming on well we blew that open boys <laughs> <laughs> you guys, you guys are both you guys, ever. you guys are both so polite that you didn't want to talk over each other, which I totally no, understand. No, the truth is that neither of us are polite. We both know that about ourselves, and so in the opening moment of a show, when we know how we're supposed to act before we get revved up, we're both able to do it. But 15 minutes from now, there's no chance either of us could wait that long. That was that was so accurate. That was the perfect description of what just happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Uh, so, how many for, years in a row is this for us? 
This is three or four. Um, let's see. I, I, I've, and what's weird is I think I, from my end, I've recorded this from a different location every single time we've done it. Because one time I was like at my dad's work for some reason. It's been weird. But this is a very different, in some ways, Northwest Division, some, some really interesting changes. And I'll, I'll start with Adam on this. We'll, we'll talk about it as a group, obviously. But where I like to start, because this is combination off-season review and season preview, is a very basic question most of the time. Who do you think got better and who do you think got worse? Yeah, that's a good one. I, I think um, just kind of going in order of the standings last year, I think Denver got better. They Their team is all 25 and under. I think there's three guys older than 25 on the roster currently. So just by virtue of them growing up, they got better. I think Jeremy Grant was a great addition, especially when you look at it at the cost of Trey Lyles, who was – the worst rotation player for them last year. So they got better. Utah clearly got better. I mean, we don't, we'll talk plenty about them, but they added a bunch of pieces. And then I think for worse, Oklahoma City is going to be a funny topic for all of this because they have a very interesting roster. It's just that nobody, they're not – they're sort of in limbo. Um, I do think Portland got worse, though. They're the one team, 53 wins last year, and partly due to the injuries, but partly due to – I think the way they've structured their roster, I think they're slightly worse. So I think Portland's really interesting. I'm going to bring up a point about Denver that I think is going to be different than what other people say. And over the long run, I think Denver is going to be fine. But one thing I do not think is true in this league that we as media pundits talk about all the time is the value of continuity. I actually think it's a negative, and I think we saw that throughout last year. Utah didn't start well. Same roster. Boston didn't start well. Same roster. And if you start to look back through what ends up happening being around these type of teams is two things. One is a team like Denver came out last year with this incredible ball of fire because they lost that 82nd game and they came with this amazing pizzazz and they had an easy schedule early and they blitzed it and they gained confidence and they started rolling and they got this togetherness. Now everybody just left and Jamal Murray got a contract and Gary Harris didn't. He did the year before and no Jokic is going to go play European ball and be it, and, and nothing bad about any of this and this can happen to the best of guys. And I think this is a group of really good people, but they've all had other people talking to them now and nobody returns mm-hmm. on September 5th, the same way they left on April or May. And so when it doesn't come back together the same way and the, and there's a complacency. And then the last one that happens is what, and this is no differently in a basketball team than a workplace. You can work with someone and you adore them. You think they're brilliant at what they do, but they have that one little personality characteristic that drives you bananas. And your fifth year of working with them or your third year working with them, it bothers you more. So if you're Donovan Mitchell and you love Derek Favors and think he's just the best dude on the planet and you drive the lane to open up the season and his guy cuts you off again, you're like, (laughs) oh my gosh. It's not against Favors. It's just this. So that when... Gary Harris coming off a bad season is not is open on the right wing and Jamal Murray doesn't see him. It's not that Jamal Murray's a bad dude, but Gary Harris goes, oh, again. And it just and Oklahoma City was supposed to have continuity. and It didn't work. So I actually don't necessarily think that the mantra of continuity is a great thing. I let me say the bigger thing. I think Denver will be fine. Yeah, I still think they got better. And and then that was kind of like the, the, the starting point for it. But you do raise the interesting sort of question about this Denver team, which was that last year they had this great motivation, this great target, because they felt not just the previous season, but the two previous seasons, they had come up one game short of the playoffs. So they had this 
this hunger. What's interesting is there was the narrative around Denver last year that they were fake contenders, which I think was unfair to them because they didn't consider themselves contenders. Like they, they kind of knew where they belonged in the, in the NBA ecosystem and they overachieved on paper going to nearly going to the Western conference finals. So I think they're still hungry because they still collectively all talk about where they are at in their process and still on the climb. But I do think that it's probably going to be less urgent than what they were this last season in this like we've got to get over the hump type type of situation. So I, I think you I, I say I, I would probably agree with you at like 50 percent. I still think the continuity is a huge positive. I don't think that they're in a point where they are tired of each other yet. But that is something that is on the very near horizon for this group. I, th- I think the other one on Denver is just how weird that schedule was last year. And I don't know what impact it has this year because we don't have the schedule as we record this. They they just had such an easy schedule early in the season. And so, you know, I did some stuff getting ready for this show and I could pull all sorts of numbers since January 15th that showed that they weren't as good. But that was against a much more difficult schedule. So I don't know. What I, 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 I'm kind of lost, and I love the momentum they played with last year. I really like Denver an awful lot, but I mean, if you look at like from January 15th on, they're only the 15th best offense in the NBA, which is pretty surprising to me. And they were only the 13th best defense in the NBA. Now that's because the schedule got harder. So it's a little misleading, but it's still a little eye opening to me. I think I think it had significantly more to do with Millsap, Gary Harris, and Will Barton all being out at the exact same time. But it could be a little bit of both. Agreed. And I'll, and I have, Gary Harris, I have big notes on coming up, so we'll uh, we'll we'll get to that. Well, and and I think with what what David's getting at with the continuity point also ties in with the idea of motivation and effort, like on the defensive end in particular. You know, like there are some teams that come back and are a house of fire defensively. Like I I mean. The extreme archetype here is the 15-16 Warriors that won the championship and then won 73 games, but most teams aren't that team. But a lot of, like, Boston is a good example of that, where it's just they, they weren't quite the same. They, they didn't have that same focus, that same edge, and all the other, all the little frustrations that built into big frustrations can, can be a part of it. And... I, I want to talk about Portland a little bit because I, I think that their their off season was really compelling because I mean the biggest moves they made in many ways were extensions and retentions you know like CJ and Dame getting those contracts which don't really affect the team because those guys were under contract nobody thought they were going to trade him but outside of that really basically losing their forward sized guys losing Marcus yeah. losing Alfred Camino. Getting Bazemore, Tolliver, Hazonia, and Hassan Whiteside. I think. I think. Well, obviously, Whiteside's not a forward, but you know, he's more of a Nurkic stopgap than to me than anything else. But I find that really fascinating because there's this weird parallel be- for me between the Blazers and the Pacers, two teams that were successful. I would say you could argue that both of them exceeded expectations last year, one in the regular season, one in the playoffs, and they have adapted to what happened last year for reasons that could be many by kind of changing part of their continuity, changing part of their roster construction in a way that I generally don't agree with because I think that forwards are such an important part of the league, even if neither team was built around them in the first place. So Portland last year, the, Mo Harkless and Al Farouk Amina were unplayable in that Denver series. And, and Portland turned things around when it looked like they were not going to, when they just kind of gave up on their quote-unquote defensive lineups. They With those two on the court, they just said, we're not stopping them anyway. We might as well just try to score a bunch of points. 
And I think looking at their roster now, it kind of seems like that might be the plan now for the whole season. I think that's a better, in some ways, postseason plan than it is a regular season one. But um, those two guys, Harkless and Amino, I think were responsible for a lot of their regular season wins and were re- almost responsible for them not beating Denver in the playoffs. They're the fourth best offensive team in all of the NBA last year. And they're better offensively than they were yeah, last year. they are definitely they are. better offensively. I mean, there's a chance that's the best offensive team in the NBA this year. Well, yeah, because you have – so the teams that were above them last year, the Warriors, they're going to be missing Clay. The Rockets, they made a series of different moves. And it's, if James Harden is slightly more human than he has been. And then the Bucks, I mean, that was an unbelievable year, a slight and they were down. they were virtually the same. Same, yeah. I mean, they, they were a, a tenth of a point away. I, I'm, I'm not convinced that Portland got worse. I don't – like I, I'm a little. I'm not comfortable with understanding who they are. Um, but I actually think Terry Stott's defensive system just makes them the 15th best defensive team in the league. Like they just always are, right? We talked about it a lot last year about how they had that crazy defensive number of what people were shooting at the rim and where people shoot. I mean, he is. He believes in dropping the big at a level that is just more so than about any team in the the entire league. Like he just doesn't allow teams to to try or at least prevents teams from getting there. They're the second best team in the league at denying the corner three. They're the third best team at denying the three point shot. They do this every year. Whiteside's gonna be fine. He'll just sit in front of the rim. Like he'll go for too many block shots. He'll do all of this stuff. I. I'm not convinced they got a lot worse, and I think Terry Stotts continually makes them really good, and I do agree exactly with what Adam said, that I have a hard time envisioning them without Mo Harkless and Al Farouk Aminu because of the fact that they were so vital to them in the regular season the last few years, but they also were the fourth best offensive team in the league with two of the worst shooters <laughs> in the league at their position. That's what they if were. You- and, and so they've actually done something very similar to what Utah's done. Ricky Rubio it was pretty much one of the two worst shooting point guards. Jay Crowder and Al Farouk Amino were the two worst shooting power forwards in the league. Mo Harkless was the worst shooting, one of the worst shooting small forwards in the league. And they've gotten rid of those guys. They that might be the best offensive team in the NBA. Well, it, I agree with you that they're, they're, they have a lot of those bones. It'll be very interesting to see. You talked about Whiteside's fit defensively, and I agree with that. But can he play ball offensively with them? Because he is not Yusuf Nurkic on that end of the floor, and it will be very different. I mean, so Hassan Whiteside, his, his usage rate has been around 23, 25 the last couple of years. And yeah, I mean, if they're thrown into him for dunks, that's totally fine. But Whiteside doesn't make as good decisions with the ball in his hands. For those who remember, I used to track Whiteside assists. It's always been pretty amazing because he's just not a good passer. So I wonder how all that's going to work. But they have so much talent and shifting shifting that shooting, you know, basically changing a lot of it, even if they're going to players who can be limited in other ways, just giving the real estate back to Lillard and CJ, I think it could end up being transformative for McCollum, who in a kind of an underrated way, even though he's been very good the last few years, he hasn't really taken the strides forward as an offensive force that I expected after he was so good early in his career. And some of that might've just been that he didn't have the space to work with. Let me ask one question about them. And this might be this might get me back to where Adam was, who said that they were one of the teams that got less good. Anthony Simons, Kent Bazemore, Mario Hezonia, Anthony Tolliver, Pau Gasol. That's their bench. Yeah. 
Well, and yeah, and, that, that it, group gets run over. It's, it's also worth remembering, and then, and they lost Seth Curry. They lost a lot of guys that that could really play for them. Is Portland has benefited so much, and and again, this is I don't know medical staffs well enough to know if this is fluky or whatever else. They have been remarkably healthy, at least in terms of their stars, yep. the last couple of years. And there might be some, you know, it's kind of the idea of skill versus luck. There definitely could be some skill there, and having your best players, their two stars, be guards, sometimes helps that out because they can be they're sometimes in the fray a little bit less. But this team in particular, this year's iteration, when they don't have Napier, they don't have Seth Curry. If either one of those guys misses 15, 20 games, heaven forbid, a lot more than that, they're going to have some big problems. And it's not just the two guys. I mean, because you could have said that last year about Lillard and McCollum, but because of how thin they are, I think now you can look at a lot more of the positions and just say, you know, what happens if Bazemore's out? It's not that he's the most important piece, but now if he's out, that means somebody else is in, and then well, that Rodney bench is Hood. even worse. So. Like Rodney Hood is strangely yeah, right. important to this team. All right, now you guys made me uncomfortable about my colleagues. I was blatantly triggering you, David, by saying that Rodney Hood's health was important to the success of the Portland Trailblazers. Nobody, well, nobody, no, nobody, nobody's flip-flops since Mitt Romney. No, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> That's so true. Um, like, I, I, I don't – you know what? I don't know on the Blazers. I guess there's enough in me that says I'm not willing to just go on this kind of comment that everyone's making that they're not as good. And as I was prepping for this show, there were just a bunch of things that made me think they're going to be real. And then you got, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm a big Zach Collins fan. I actually think this could be a really big year for him and he could be sort of a, you know, an inflection point for how their season goes. But Hassan Whiteside's not the kind of guy. I mean, the minutes distribution between those guys, I almost see no way for there to be both parties to be happy about how many minutes are playing. Either Collins is significantly better in playing a lot more and Whiteside is not happy with that. Or you're putting a bunch of minutes towards Whiteside, who's just a rental anyway. Uh, to me, that's a weird situation to be in. Well, it, it could even be crazier than that because my instinct is that they're going to start Collins and Whiteside together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, then that opens a whole bunch of other stuff, I mean, in terms of how they're going to run the rest of their rotation. And, yeah, I, I think that the, the defensive part of it with Whiteside is going to work out totally well. But as, as Adam kind of brought up, the overall ecosystem stuff, and that starts early on, you know, with Collins and with the— you know, figuring out what they're going to do with the overall front court rotation. But then once Nurkic gets back and Whiteside is basically, you know, at best a, a fringe bench player, you know, depending on how well Collins is playing and what they do in the front court. But that does get into another interesting idea that I've had. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it's possible, underlying possible, that one of the benefits of getting Whiteside once Nurkic gets back, because he is a stopgap in my opinion, is that they could theoretically use him as ballast in another trade. Like, let's say, right. if they wanted to get Kevin Love. Right. Something like that. And that might be the way to make this work. Now, whether the timing fits up that Olshay can pull that off, whether the other teams are interested in that, whether you know Whiteside plays well enough to actually improve his value at all, or whether he's just salary filler, that's all interesting. But... I'm filing that away because that is another way that I could like Portland a lot more in March and April than I do right now. My sources tell me that Portland didn't go hunt after love before the white side deal. I don't know if that impacts anything, but that's interesting. What yeah, that, 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 is, that is notable for me. Lake Oswego I, product, I expected. And, and he also kind of make, makes sense with his offense first idea that they've been going for. Yeah. What happens, I, if, they, what happens if they think Zach Collins is a four? Well, they'll <laughs> I think they'll find out this year. Because yeah. I, I think he's starting there. I don't like him as a four at all. I th- you, like, you like <laughs> I, him as a five? 
I do. I like him as a five. I think he he has a lot of the tools to make that uh, to be interesting there. And I liked him in the playoffs too. I thought he had some really really bright moments. I mean, I'm also extremely low on Whiteside, even in this very narrow role, limited time there, and all that stuff. I just still think he is a guy that um, smart teams always seem to beat. I will tell you, he wasn't when I prepped for the show. Some of his numbers weren't as bad as I thought they would be. He's, uh, he's, been a, he's been a plus minus darling for a long time. Right. Yeah. And, and like my my feeling on him is the opposite. Right. That when he's in, in Miami acted like he was the opposite. They seemed to close with Bam out of Bayou all the time last year. And they did all sorts of things that made you believe that he was not very good for them. Um, I've listened to numerous shows of Locked on Heat with those guys talking about how it and <laughs> and so it seems to me that uh, I was a little surprised on that. Um, by the way, one note on Zach Collins. Um Defensive rebounding rate. I think he's in the 21st percentile for his position. Yikes. 14%, 14% last year, according to Cleaning the Glass. So they're, they they might have a feeling that he is not a five because he can't rebound well enough at this stage or permanently. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a possibility. There is one team we haven't really talked about at all yet, and I don't think we'll spend, we'll spend more time on them in a different section. But Minnesota had a, had a kind of a, a quiet offseason, and I would say they got worse, even though I like a lot of the players that they brought in, just because they lost so much like veteran capability, you know, like Rose and Taj Gibson and Dario Saric. And so even though I like Napier, Travion Graham, Jordan Bell, Ty Wallace, Von Lee, like I like all those guys. I, I, I mean, it's, it just seems like that's a pretty significant talent downgrade, even if some of those guys have upside that I enjoy. I think the Timberwolves have given a master class in how to ruin an elite talent in Carl Anthony Towns. And it, I, to me, it's such a – I don't mean to be the downer for them, but I am I am higher on Towns than almost every every other person. I've heard all the stories about the personality and, and some of the, the, those um, intangible things. But just as a raw talent, he is so incredible. And it feels weird that this is the first training camp he will walk into as the like undisputed leader. And to me, I don't know what to make of that because all the rest of this town, as you mentioned, it's a little it's a little strange and hard to figure out a roster. But if you were just talking about on paper, the talent they have around him, that he is now for certain the best player and the centerpiece of everything they do, I could get behind that. But because this is coming in year five and the way it's just sort of unfolded, um, to me, this is just another sort of directionless year, rudderless year for them. I always look at teams and think to myself, if they're going to be really good, what has to happen? And I can't figure that out on Minnesota. <laughs> right. Well, well, so what like, I, so, what, what so I would Jeff say, Teague has to be engaged for 82 games. That's not happening. Well, what I would say the answer for, for that for Minnesota is, is that they actually played pretty well, especially defensively, when Carl Anthony Towns and and Robert Covington were able to be on the floor together. And it was a small sample and all that because Covington got hurt and everything else. And so maybe the idea is that offensively Towns is just amazing. And so they could they could put together enough. I mean, there's still a lot there that I don't like. And then defensively, maybe they're just not terrible. And not terrible might be enough to make them okay if the offense takes a big step forward. The problem for me, like Minnesota, and there are a couple other teams like this that aren't in this division. Well, maybe OKC, where if they were in the East, I think I would be thinking about them and talking about them differently. Because even though we shouldn't rigidly use the playoffs as a prism, like it, I, 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 it could happen that Minnesota makes it that far. But for me, they're more one of those teams where even if they're better than expected, they're probably still not one of the eight best teams in the West. I agree. And so I just get less engaged with those teams because. 
I feel like we know the story. And also, and this ties in a little bit with OKC, is that generally speaking, those teams, gravity pulls them in the other direction. Meaning like one guy gets hurt and then they're just like, well, crap, we're not going to make the playoffs. Let's let's trade some guys or let's, you know, let's let's sit guys early, you know, like the Eric Bledsoe type stuff, though, that was more extreme, obviously, in Phoenix. I feel like that's the sort of thing that could happen with Minnesota where, like, I like them more than other people, but that still doesn't make them, like, anything close to a playoff team. I would also point out uh, it's really, really, really hard to coach in this league. Like, (laughs) crazy hard. Yeah. And actually, Adam might have an up close with Mike Malone and his evolution to that point. Ryan Saunders, I don't have any idea. Maybe he's going to turn out to be a great coach. Right. His – the – his script of being a first-time head coach in the NBA does not usually work. If you look at coaches who have been good in the NBA, they've almost always been a head coach somewhere other than the NBA. Even if it's Stan Van Gundy at like some small college somewhere you've never heard of or Tom Thibodeau at some college. And I know Thibodeau by the end wasn't great, but he was for a while. It, it, the amount of coach, it's unusual to have someone just come up as an assistant coach in two places and be a good NBA head coach with that limited experience. And it's really hard to be a coach in this league. And so I just think also that that maybe Ryan Saunders is going to be a good coach five years from now. And maybe he's going to be a good coach this year. I don't, I don't know, but the script and the history of that is that he will be on the lower end of head coaches this season in the NBA. And that will hurt them. I, ha- I, have, to, is- I have to note something at, at first. The argument that David just made is almost the exact argument I made when the Warriors hired Mark Jackson. <laughs> I, I, it was that whole thing about maybe he'll end up being good, but it won't. It probably won't be right away. I, I crack me up, but go on, Adam. Well, this goes counter to the point I was about to raise, which is that a lot of this is selection bias because people with very little experience, the jobs they get tend to be jobs where you're set up to fail. I mean, these are, and, and I think that, quite frankly, I actually think Minnesota's kind of falls into this category because there's not a cohesive identity. There's not a, this like it doesn't the team doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense. You have to sort of make sense of them. And so a lot of these guys that you're talking about, they get these jobs because who else were they going to get to fill the shoes? Well, yeah. And, and with Saunders there, it can also be a reminder of how many different facets there are to coaching in the NBA. Like it certainly seems like the motivation camaraderie part of it, at least last year worked really well in his favor. It looks like the players really liked playing for him though. You get a big honeymoon because you're coming from a play from a coach that <laughs> players didn't like playing for. And you're like, Hey, right. you know, it's you're the, you're the substitute teacher when you're, when the primary teacher is a hard ass, you know, like you, you get Ryan Saunders got a lot of that shine. And but there's so much more. There's the tactical stuff. It's who do I play and when? What what scheme do we run? When do we change? Who's on the floor in crunch time? And we just don't have enough information yet to know if he's good at handling those components of it. And it's it's you're never going to find a coach, or very rarely at least, who is good in all of those facets. I mean, there are myriad examples. I mean, I've criticized elements of Greg Popovich's coaching, and he's the best. He's the best coach of, of my lifetime in the NBA, in my opinion. And nobody's perfect, but which of those boxes Ryan Saunders checks now and, let's say, five years from now will be really important because, especially with this weird Minnesota roster, if they're going to reach their potential on either end of the floor, it does seem like who plays and when and what schemes they use are going to be key to that success should it happen. I think the point you made earlier, Danny, that these teams that are on the cusp of being one way or the other almost always go down. 
The league's so hard. Yeah, There's so many different true. things going on in the league. There's, you know, just distractions, injuries, difficulties. It's really hard to win. I think that's the number one thing that the average fan in the league doesn't quite understand. And that is how really, really hard it is to win. And and so I think the best point you made um, is that these teams usually go the other direction. Yeah. Like New Orleans is a good example of that last year. There was a lot that I liked about that team, but once things got bad, they just fell off and it was health. It was every, you know, the AD stuff, everything else. And that's just the way it goes. And I think that's a pretty good lead in into uh, we can all pick a, a move or I'm, I'm guessing we'll just use this as a vessel to talk about a series of them because this division was fascinating. That stood out. That stood out to you from the offseason. That could be a, a pick. It could be a, a trade. It could be a signing. And where I want to start because we haven't talked about them that much so far is with what happened in Oklahoma City. And my overarching, overarching kind of feeling on this is this is not where I expected Oklahoma City to go. But I think <laughs> no. this. I think this worked out exceedingly well for them because as as good as they were in their best moments last year, to me they weren't a title contender, and they got. A huge premium, especially on Paul George, but I also think they got a pretty good premium on Russell Westbrook too. <laughs> I was letting you go first, Adam. I know, and I didn't want to. <laughs> I think the team—it's—it's it's just weird because you're right, Beth. We talk about them as a future team, but this current team that they have—it's weird because—is it weird that I actually like this team? I mean, Chris Paul, uh, Shea, Danilo Gallinari, Stephen Adams—that's four really good players. And but it's it just doesn't feel like a team. This feels like a, a a group of guys in limbo waiting for the final version of this team to form at some point during the season. It, it feels like a bunch of people at an airport that are just waiting to find out yeah. which flight they're on. And what's crazy about it, as you brought up, like if Oklahoma City was in the Eastern Conference, I would think of them as a playoff team. And and that hundred percent that ties in with the gravity idea. And if they were in the East, you know, they could keep a lot of these competitive guys. You know, like Gallinari, who I really like and had had a wonderful year last year. Got to the line a ton was shooting it better and could be like uh, he actually Gallinari incidentally could have been a really good piece on a more actualized version of Thunder but they didn't have the capacity to take on his money until they dumped a bunch of salary so yeah I mean you there are ways of looking at this team and thinking that it could fit together really well but I think that the gravity is going to end up clarifying this and they they're the, the the way that it works in the airport analogy is that they're getting on flights, but they're going in different places because they, you know, I don't know that Sam Presti wants to, if they can get a decent return for somebody like Gallo or if somebody just overvalues Chris Paul, that it's worth keeping this team together if, let's say, I would say the realistic best case scenario for them is like the six seed, and I think that might even be rosy. So keeping that team together for longer considering what they've gone through doesn't really seem worth it but hey maybe as as david said like with the nuggets last year maybe the season starts off for them and they go out and they're five games over 500 in january and they just say hey let's roll with it all right here's my bizarre oklahoma city thought the western conference maybe the clippers are going to run away but i have a feeling they feel like teams seven through two in the western conference are going to be decided divided between like 52 and 48 wins and it might be decided by who gets Oklahoma City after December 15th and who gets Oklahoma City mm. before December 15th. Yeah. Like, I don't want to play them in the first two months of the season. I think they're going to be all right in the first two months. Chris Paul will be churning. Danilo won't have his injuries yet. Steven Adams will be rolling. But as the season goes on, I think they will regress 
either due to injury, trades, or something of the sort. But I, I, if, if you get a schedule like last year where they had these weird aspects where everyone had their games uh, bunched together against teams. We, I know Utah, we played a bunch of – we played Oklahoma City, I think, three times before December 25th. And or December 27th, I think was the third or fourth time we played them. Like if you get that again, they might go get you two out of three. But if you get them all on the backside, you might go get them all four times. Players also know Gallo is a, a first team all sort of coaster when when he knows he doesn't you know, he's not needed. And so I wonder if this team also knows that they're, you know, to use the airport metaphor, they're all standing away around waiting for their flights. And, and what do you give if you're Gallo and you play 60 games every year because you're always hurt? How much? How hard do you go? He's in a contract year too. How hard do you go for this team that's not committed to you long term? Clearly doesn't have you in their long term plans. So I the same goes for Chris Paul. I mean, I think Chris Paul probably hopes in he's a professional. I'm sure he'll go out and play, but in the back of his mind, he has to kind of know like, what am I doing here? We're not winning a championship. I hope I don't spend my final years of my career here. So to me, the talent. It's weird talking about this team because the talent. Is there's some interesting pieces there? I just think the real story of this team is all the other stuff that has nothing to do with the roster. And I'm going to get onto this point a few times today because this is my high horse right now. But players who rookies who have a good first year do not have a better second year. Rookies who have a bad first year have a better second year. And then rookies who have a good first year make a jump between year two and year three. Shea Gilgis Alexander had a pretty good first year. I would suspect he has a very similar year this year and then gets better the year after. So I would not expect a jump from him in this year. I hadn't really thought about this too much, but it is also weird that the it looks like the starting OKC backcourt is the last two Clippers point guards of the future with Paul <laughs> and Jay. That, that's bizarre. Uh, and with Gallo, with Gallo, Adam, I, I like that you brought up the point about like what is his motivation and, and all that because not only is it his contract year, but Gallinari just, he turned 31 today. Happy birthday, Gallo, if you listen to the podcast. And that... You know, this is basically his his last opportunity for a big contract. Like that's that's what this year is, and so I think that's significant motivation. And so I don't think he's necessarily playing for the name on the front of the jersey. He's playing for the opportunity to have a contract, and a big part of it for Gallo, if he wants to be more tactical, Machiavellian about this, is trying to play well enough that OKC trades him to a team that wants to resign him using bird rights. Like, yep. That's a, because there aren't as many teams. There are still going to be plenty, but there aren't as many teams that have cap space. The teams that have cap space next year are mostly young teams, so they're not going to be as interested in Gallinari. So maybe what's going on here is Oklahoma City try, like tries to get him to a team, and I'm not going to pick any because I haven't really thought about Gallo trade destinations yet. I'm not at that point in my brain. But tries to get him to a team that is, that is interested in, and I mean, he's a talented offensive player. His ability to get to the line, he's I think an underappreciated passer when he's engaged, and like he can do a lot of cool stuff. And I, I thought the year that he had last year in LA was was under the radar and kind of impressive. I mean, I had him, I think I had him as an All NBA consideration until the final like two months of the season. But Gallo was a fantastic player. I mean, he's he's been in a few smaller markets or under the radar or whatever, but he is when healthy a fantastic player. The win healthy part, I think, is probably line one of his of his bio. But but he has the talent that fits the modern NBA very very well. I love him. Um, I my tongue is somewhat 
in my cheek here on this comment, but uh, and maybe to Chris Paul's credit, we've never seen him on a bad team before. But if he can't get along with teammates on a good team, what's he going to be like on a bad team? <laughs> well, this ties in with my idea of what is Chris Paul going to be like once he like ages out of being a good NBA player because his you, you don't lose those elements of your personality. It's not like I mean I remember this with with all the Kobe stuff and yeah, Kobe softened his edges a little bit, especially with the media, but also probably with teammates later on became more of a mentor than a smush parker destroyer but you know it is hard to be anything else because that's you know chris paul's been the best player he's or at least close to it on basically every team he's played on since probably like the fifth grade and that will be a challenge and especially because there, i mean other than shea there aren't that many like really developmental guys i guess like diallo and ferguson but they don't play the same position like that kind of stuff so it'll be interesting i, I don't really know what his role is going to be there Adam, do you want both of us to talk about the go wait, ahead. I've got to drop I gotta drop one more bomb here on this okay. one just because here we go. I was not gonna say it, um, but I'm going to. So I have a statistical model I use to judge offensive players. You can decide what you think of it. There is no team that had a bigger upgrade offensively than Danilo Gallinari and Chris Paul in exchange for uh, Russell Westbrook <laughs> and Paul George. I love it. It's absolutely an it, it's it's an incredible upgrade. Okay, I mean, okay. incredible. Russell Westbrook had the biggest negative impact on his team offensively of any team in the NBA last year. And Danilo Gallinari was a better offensive player than Paul George last year by a somewhat considerable margin, actually, um, using close to the same amount of possessions. So, you know, just if you ran without the names and you put in Chris Paul instead of Russell Westbrook offensively and Danilo Gallinari instead of Paul George offensively, they got way better offensively. Wow. Yeah, and, and I mean, the George Gallo part is tougher for me, but Chris Paul was a better offensive player than Russ last year. And even though it's not that division, because, David, because you've done that work and you dropped that bomb, one we can each, do, or you guys can each, because I've done it on this show before, do you want to do one minute on Russell Westbrook playing in Houston? <laughs> Well, I'm actually going to – I'll do my one minute, and I'm going to flip. Um, Russell Westbrook was the worst offensive player for his team, most detrimental uh, in the league. I think, though, if you're going to start talking about, like I will later, what I think Donovan Mitchell is going to do this year with space when he no longer has Terrence Ferguson and Andre Robertson and a bunch of non-shooters around him, and instead it's a perfectly spaced floor with Eric Gordon, P.J. Tucker – and James Harden, I think the Clint Capella, Russell Westbrook pick and roll could be something pretty awesome. And I also think that Russell Westbrook has been at his best in his career when he is the second option offensively, not the first. That was clear with Durant. But Paul George was never for most of his career in Oklahoma City, other than maybe two months early in last year, was that assertive about being the number one option that James Harden will be. So I think Westbrook will be closer to an average offensive player for the Rockets and makes them very good. I, I can see it. I, I still don't love it. I still think it in a playoff setting, it it creates one wrinkle that that uh, that makes them maybe a little bit not easier to guard because you never want to say easier to guard, but makes maybe maybe limits them a little bit. But they're just a higher variance team. Their highs will be higher. Their lows will be lower. That's my opinion. Yeah, I'm pretty close to Adam. And I think that Westbrook, especially with the spacing that David brought up in the minutes that they're staggered, I think that it's really going to help the Rockets because he can give them an identity and a, a kind of a sense of urgency. And I think D'Antoni will run those minutes really well, you know, have the right guys on the floor. And he the the mentality that they used for Paul and Harden in the split minutes, I think will work exactly the same. And I think that'll fit together really well. 
I'm more concerned about the minutes when they share the floor, especially in the playoffs, but I do believe that it's more of a postseason problem than a regular season problem just because they're so talented. Most teams can't contain those guys anyway, and they don't do the tactical adjustments. But, uh, I mean, so we've gone this long in the transaction section without talking about the most prominent moves that each of the two teams that you follow (laughs) most closely have made. Let's start with Mike Conley. I mean, the, the transition going from Rubio to Conley is going to be absolutely striking. And I'm exceedingly excited to see what Utah's offensive attack looks like, especially because they also brought in Bogdanovich. The Mike Conley move also had reverberations across the way the franchise was viewed in the league. It was a signal to the rest of the league that they were serious. Uh, Their bench, Jeff Green and Ed Davis, both basically said the reason they signed in Utah uh, on contracts that they were offered by other teams is because they wanted to play with Mike Conley. Jeff Green was actually going to Disney World uh, three days after his press conference in Utah with the Conley family. Ed Davis uh, played with Mike Conley in Memphis and talked about a story about how he got a DNP uh, in Memphis and Mike Conley was the one who got him through it and he's been forever thankful to that and that so Mike Conley changed who the Jazz were both on the floor that I think perception wise and then maybe uh, most importantly is probably exactly who Donovan Mitchell needs near him as Donovan Mitchell moves through his career trying to figure out how can I be a great guy and a leader and a star in this league and he's probably got the best example in the league. Yeah, that guard combo, I think, is just – it's such an ideal fit. I mean, Conley does exactly what you needed to, uh, in theory at least, unlock Donovan Mitchell. So I like their moves too. I like the Bogdanovich move as well. Um, the Ed Davis one is the one I'm actually sneaky high on, and I'm curious to hear what, what you thought – what you think, David, because you're so close to it. But, you know, Ed Davis was number two in uh, defensive RPM last year. I know it's not the greatest stat – these defensive catch-alls, but he's number two, 17.3 rebounds per 36 minutes last year. He played 81 games. That would have been third if he would have qualified for uh, on basketball reference. If he would have qualified, I think he fell short by like 66 minutes. He's a good player. He's a really good player for the role he's going to have there. And uh, so I, I like a lot of what they do. The one, the one thing that sticks out like a sore thumb to me, I guess there's two because I'm very low on Jeff Green as well, but Emmanuel Moutier has been an anchor for all four seasons of his NBA career. When he is on the court, no matter how good or bad the team is and the players you put around him, the team is bad when he is on the court. And I don't know that he – I don't know how much Utah's going to rely on him, but if he, he is relied upon in any capacity, I just would be surprised if he was not a, an anchor like he has been uh, throughout his career. I think the you know you've got Exum and uh, Moutier in that backcourt. Both of them are about thirty eight percent career through shooters and thirty percent three point shooters, and one of them better step up and be able to play because you don't want Mike Conley playing more than about seventy one games, and you don't want him playing more than thirty minutes a night. Now, frankly, Donovan Mitchell will probably play some backup point guard minutes in that process, and Joe Ingles, for all intents and purposes, plays point guard probably for some of those minutes. So I think that there is. Uh, some buffer there, but I don't think that what you're saying is unfair. Uh, Moutier, actually, I'd give him this. If you go before he had, I think it was an ankle sprain early last year in New York, and before New York had just completely pulled the ripcord, there were some signs of development. Um, the the numbers in his career are undeniable. The vision of you know what he's done. He also, I, I don't know that he's going to be any better here, but looking back at him on his career, I'm actually kind of was stunned. I didn't take notice of it when it happened. If you go back, he doesn't play really high school because he goes to Deion Sanders Academy yeah. in, in Dallas and they get 
And he ends up, they rule basically they're all their athletic system ineligible. He signs in China. He plays 11 games, I think it was, because of a sprained ankle. And then Denver starts him for 68 games. Like, no wonder he was terrible. Maybe he would have been terrible anyway. But holy smokes, they threw him into a deep end when he wasn't ready. And so I just wonder if this is a chance for him to just learn under Mike Conley, learn in a system, play 14 minutes a night, and just try to figure out how to play this game for the first time in his career. I think Denver definitely did the wrong thing by sort of, you know, we're going to let you learn through mistakes. Um, probably not the best teacher for him, but it's also just his skill set. I mean, I'm not, I, there's, there's really nothing about his skill set that I enjoy. He's not a great shooter. Uh, he's a horrible decision maker. And he, the, his worst quality is that he just can't finish at the rim for whatever reason. He threw con- any type of contested shot. Um, he really struggles with, and he struggles with the decision-making on, you know, when to attack the basket, when to shoot the floater, when to pull it back out. So I, there's nothing about his game I like, and that's, and I'm, I don't like, I don't, I'm not trying just to rag on him, but, and it's not even about, I know Donovan Mitchell will take some of the lead ball handling duties. It's just Exum and Moody, one of those guys and Jeff Green, some of those guys are going to have to be on the court. And I think all of those guys create just this huge, um, variance for, for how Utah season could go. Let me just, uh, Agree and give just give him one little nugget of okay. True shooting percentage in Emmanuel Moutier's career, 44%, which is like really hard to do. 48%, 48%, 47%, 53% last year. So something might have he had an unusually good uh shooting in the mid-range, some things like that. Like maybe something happened, maybe not. And on that note of maybe not, he's a minimum salary. Like and he, that, that's he, where I was prob- gonna go. He's like, probably not worth that much conversation. If he's terrible. No. They're going to cut him and sign Shelvin Mack, who just signed in Europe, right? Like, I mean, there's you can go find somebody at that point. But when you have a $30 million point guard, you have a million-dollar backup. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's the way yeah. it works. And and so for me, one of the most exciting parts of Connolly going there is with these young guards that are kind of combo-y, like they can do well with the ball in their hands, but they can also be off-ball guys. Oladipo, to me, is another guy in this conversation, though he did a lot with the ball in his hands two years ago. I like the idea of pairing them with somebody else who's dynamic because then it gives the team options. So if Mitchell becomes that guy, you know, becomes the player who can run, you know, his presence alone makes makes the team a successful NBA offense. Then you can figure out what you want to do with Connolly. Connolly's also a wonderful shooter. He can play off ball. And I le- I really love that Utah is is being more flexible with that development. I'm going to be very interested. It's going to take some time in Indiana to see if Oladipo and Brogdon, like what the difference is in the development between that pairing and Conley and, and, and Mitchell. I think it's going to be great for Donovan. It might take some time to bear fruit. It often does. But I'm really, really excited about that. And Utah going for this, you know, kind of in the line of Portland of going for a more offensive approach, you know, yeah. largely, it is going to be fascinating. I think that's going to, you know, there will be times where it, it has some negatives because they won't have that same, you know, that same oomph defensively that has been so, I mean, Rudy Gobert, if Rudy Gobert might win Defensive Player of the Year by an even larger margin this year, depending on how it goes, if they're still amazing defensively. But having that much more spacing, like I, I think that we're getting to the point where one of the key stories in this this NBA year, kind of feeding in with last year and maybe the following year, is just how how teammates, you know, even just the basic stuff like can they take and make threes, how that changes life for the stars. So like I brought up CJ before. CJ, Donovan Mitchell, and numerous guys around the league are going to be in very different circumstances. Like even D'Angelo Russell, it's going to be really interesting to see with him and a lot of these guys. And so Maybe for some of them, that unlocks a lot of their game. And maybe for some of them, it's not as big of a deal because they just aren't as good. Like, we used it as an excuse when there were other things that were the reason they weren't succeeding. 
What, Russell, Russell's probably the biggest. Let me let me stay back on Utah. I think there's two things that are going to be unleashed here that we haven't talked about. Rudy Gobert shot 69% last year when not on the floor with Derek Favors and 70% the year before. Was he? Was it the net ratings better or worse over the last two years with him without Favors and with much Favors? Be- much better without. Much better without. Okay. In fact, if you'd like me to give this to you. I do. Uh, I will pull it up very quickly. But um, last year was much closer than it had been. But in the previous years, uh, the Jazz have always been much better. And actually, even at, until last year, as good defensively. Jay Crowder mm. had a terrible year defensively last year. Um, had been as good defensively with Rudy on the floor with a small as they were with Derek. Last year, that was not the case. Um, of course, uh, last year, favors off the floor with Rudy on. The Jazz were plus seven. And with him, uh, with both of them on the floor, they were plus 4.7. They were 7.3 versus 4.7. The year prior, they were plus 10 with uh, favors off the floor and plus 9 with him on the floor. Um, and the year before that, I believe, with Gobert on the floor without favors, they were plus uh, 7, I think it was. I don't have that up in front of me, but I had the other. So they've been they've – been, Plus seven was the worst they've been with just Gobert on the floor. Now, the one area where I think you can get a little uh, funky with these numbers is that Favors and Gobert have always played starters. Yeah, the, like there's, there's, a, there's, a sample, there's a sample issue there that, you know, you're playing different opponents. But, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I like them. to. Do you think Ed Davis will play alongside Gobert frequently? Never? Sometimes? Never. Never. Okay. Never. The reason I ask that is because – and this is just a Denver thing. I don't know if it's much else, but – the ability to put favors on Jokic to just body him physically and then use Gobert. I mean, Gobert guarding Millsap on the perimeter is brilliant because Millsap's not going to beat you out there. And so the the ability to sort of put those two bodies, I think, was, was really big. And, and if you change out and you have a stretchier four there, Denver's just so good at forcing that four down on the block to guard Yoke. And I, so that's the only thing I wonder about that specific matchup. But the numbers, it sounds like, bear out that Gobert is just as effective without him. Same, without thing, him. same thing against Minnesota where Carl Anthony Towns could bring Gobert out on the floor. So then when they had Taj Gibson and Gorgie Chang on the floor, they put Gobert on the – on the now they have Robert Covington, so it's not the same. But yeah, yeah. Um, that, that'll, that'll by, definitely by the, be by the way, I was ready for this one. Are you ready? What Denver's offensive rating when Gobert was on the floor against Jokic last year was a one hundred three point six. I'm not sure that's relevant at all, but I just was pre prepared for that. <laughs> you, you, you knew what was coming. Plenty more to talk about with David and Adam, but first, a message from BetOnline.ag. The month of August has arrived, and while temperatures outside continue to rise, the sports world is getting hotter too. With Major League Baseball and now NFL preseason action. That's right, football is officially back. There's only one place that you cover and one place we trust, that is betonline.ag. Sign up today for a free account at betonline.ag and use that promo code PODCAST1 to tell them that you came from us and to get your 50% welcome bonus. Less than two months left in the baseball regular season. Action's hot and heavy in both the American and the National League. Houston, their arms are still doing really well, and then the Yankees progressing along and... We'll see what happens in the wild card race there. I'm actually pretty interested in that. And then, of course, in football, really an, uh, an action-packed, and it's not even quite a weekend because it's a mix of days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday this week, but really getting into football. And so whether it's trying to make a, a game you are already going to watch more interesting or you want to, you think you have an advantage that you want to try to play out there, you can check it out with betonline.ag. 
Don't forget to use that promo code PODCAST1, or you can text BETNOW, B-E-T-N-O-W, to 238-669. Either way, you get a 50% welcome bonus. Tell them that you came from us, and get in on all the action at betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW. At our fully accredited world-class treatment center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. You will also benefit from specialized programs, 24-hour medical care, and the comfort of our outstanding facilities. Let us help you. We will answer your call 24-7 and can get you into treatment as soon as today. If outpatient care is right for you, you can receive a same-day assessment and attend therapy in person or virtually. And because we accept most private insurance plans, you get premium care without the premium price. Don't wait. Start your new year. Start your new life today. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Let's talk a little bit about Denver. The other prominent kind of transaction that we haven't really talked about is Jeremy Grant. And for Denver, this it, it served a couple of purposes. So one was basically they acquired Jeremy Grant using a trade exception, gave up a first-round pick for it instead of using the mid-level exception. But I also think that Jeremy Grant is a better player than who they could have gotten with the MLE this past year with salaries where they were and everything else. And I'm, I'm very intrigued by Grant. I was lower on him going into last year than most people. I thought that the contract he got was an overpay. I will admit that at least as of now, I'm wrong on that. He had a really nice year. And and Adam, what I'm interested in your thoughts on this is that it kind of seems to me like where Denver's going with this, picking up Millsap's option, acquiring Grant, is the idea that they're hoping one of those two stands out as kind of the point guard of the present after this year slash near-term future because they're both probably going to be unrestricted free agents. and But having two bites at the apple is a whole lot more manageable than just having one. You said point guard? Power forward. Sorry. That's... No, it would be okay, great so if they were. It would be great if they're Millsap and Jeremy Grant. Basically, that one of, they'll probably keep okay. one of the two after for twenty twenty. I think that their hope is actually that they'll keep both of them, but Millsap maybe on a. I, I, the only way that I think they would keep Millsap after this year is if he came on at a significant discount. He just made ninety million dollars with Denver over three years. I think that's more than half of his career earnings um, in three seasons. So I think that's their hope is um, that that they'll be able to segue that way. But um, but I think that Jeremy Grant was a long-term play. Their introductory p- press conference, unprovoked, Tim Conley said that he's a guy that they see as not just this year, but they, as, a, as a piece of their long-term future. And quite frankly, I think it makes a lot of sense. I've been a huge Jeremy Grant fan actually for a couple of years. I know this last year was his breakout year, but I like the skill set. I mean, he reminds me a bit of an Ibaka-type player where he just has that that length and athleticism and it, just motor that plays incredibly hard and then his shot – I don't know that I'm completely sold on him being a good three-point shooter, but he at least has two seasons under his belt where he did that. So um, I think they look at him as the more probably long-term, more certain long-term piece, and they're hopeful that Paul Millsap, even though he'll be one of the biggest name free agents somehow in next year's very dry free agency class, that he'll want to stick around uh, for a little bit longer. I'm a huge Jeremy Grant fan, probably more than I should be. He cannot dribble, and he cannot pass. Does it matter? 
Not at all. I don't <laughs> think they, I don't think you look. I always tell people this: the offensive rating with Kenneth Fareed and, and Nikola Jokic back in 2017 was like 126 in a, in like 400 minutes, you know, 800 possessions, something like that. A decent medium sized sample size, but it was because that athleticism. Um, down in the dunker spot is just so important. And Denver has replaced replaced him with Paul Millsap, who has no athleticism and no explosion. And their defense is so much better. Their overall, they're so much better. But just from an offensive standpoint, people always say, what's the best, you know, f- what, what skill set do you need to be a power forward alongside Jokic on the offensive end? And people always say the three-point shooting or whatever. I always say it's, if you have gravity down on the dunker spot, that, that unlocks everything Jokic does because it opens up the offensive rebounds. It occupies one defender in a space you you know you think about you almost make a diamond in terms of gravity two on one on each wing one at the top of the key and then one down on the baseline so I like his offensively I really really like his fit and defensively I think he's got the tools to be a a pretty I don't think he's like an elite defender that's going to make Denver an elite defensive team but I think he's good he's solid and especially given the talent they have in their roster he'll be one of the better defenders so I, I love the fit I think he's a great fit and his weaknesses are weaknesses that I don't think matter too much I'm with you 100% but I wanted to know. I mean, I, I don't know Mike Malone's offensive system well enough. Denver's, how, let me ask you guys. Yeah, let me ask you this one, though, because whatever your take is on Denver, would you be higher on them if they acquired Andre Iguodala? Because Denver's problem is that their wing situation is just a big question mark. I think they're they're deep at both point guard and shooting guard. They're deep at the forward and center position, but they don't have a small forward. They don't have those long wings. But they have all these players that are probably expendable. I mean, Torrey Craig, Will Barton, Juancho Hernan Gomez, Malik Beasley. Those are four, you know, three really good young players. Will Barton, who's like an impact player when he's healthy. Jared Vanderbilt's another young player. Denver, I think, could make a move to add an Iguodala. Would that change your perspective on him if that's what they had to give up? Those pieces were what they gave up, but they got him. Can I alter the question slightly? Sure. Portland, Denver, Utah. Get one of them gets Iguodala, not L.A. Clippers or Lakers, which has the biggest impact. Hmm. I, I'm going to go with Denver because he he fills a need that is more prevalent for them than the other teams in this division. You know, like Portland, that's just not what they do. So I don't think it's yeah. as big of a loss. Like they're, we've talked about Stott's defensive identity. Like I think if they had it, like the equivalent of a shutdown corner, just wouldn't make that much of a difference. Utah would be really interesting too because he's just such an intelligent defender. Pairing Iguodala with Gobert would be nasty. But yeah, that that'd be interesting. So yeah, I think it'd be. So my Utah answer, by the way, is Portland because he's the only team. Portland's the only team I think. Maybe Denver too. I, I, would he if Denver if he's on Denver does he close? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I think no no question about it. And he closes in Portland. I don't know that he closes on Utah. Yeah, I agree. But I, he, but I think he, I think Utah getting one more look on the perimeter could be a really big thing for them. Like you know, I I think Utah is kind of at a different level, and having that you know he doesn't need to close every time, but having him as an option would be huge for them. The difference between all three of these teams is that Denver actually has too many guys. I think the other ones you look at and you say, okay, there's they're a little thin at some position. Denver. They're thin at the small forward at the, the exact position Iguodala brings, but they have too many guys. Juancho Hernan Gomez might not play this year. He's been a 40% three-point shooter when healthy in his career. He might not play. Malik Beasley's been very, very good. He might play like 15 minutes a game. You know, So there's, they've got a bunch of these guys that I think are pretty solid. Even Jeremy Grant, you look at – last year he played 33 minutes. I project he's going to play about 25, 26 
which is you know a pretty big reduction, even if Millsap is down to 24, 25 minutes. So Denver just has a ton of guys, and that's why I think, to me, it makes more sense for them to go to go after him because he would close, and they have the pieces that they actually, I don't think they would, I, you give up Malik Beasley, as good as Malik Beasley is, I'm very high on him, I don't think you lose a single game that you would have won without him because you just slide Will Barton to the backup shooting guard now. That's a little bit of my opening comments about Denver right there. Yeah, I mean. Too many I, guys? Just, right. It was fine that I sat behind him last year. Malik Beasley is fine about the fact that he played, we won, it was great to, uh, well, he's probably not as fine this year about it. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think there's off the top of my head. I don't think there's any team that could benefit more from a consolidation trade than Denver. But the problem is consolidation trades are really hard to pull off because the other team has to both want the guys you have and have a guy worth consolidating Denver consolidating their players for. That's why an Iguodala trade might work because Memphis just needs so much more talent. Even though they have like 500 million guys on roster, they could use a lot of good players. And uh, let, let's, like, let's let me let well, me ask you, wait, let me let me go back to this for a second. So I, I'm a huge Gary Harris fan. Like, I'm a big Gary And he was not good last year. But if he reverts back to where he was in the two prior years, which is much more likely than him having the same year he had last year. So he's now suddenly a 49-40 guy, 15 points a game, playing 33 minutes a night. Like, Malik Beasley was really good last year. Well, here's what I find funny, because I looked this up the other day when I was looking at Malik Beasley, just kind of projecting what he was going to do. He shot, uh, I think, above I can't remember what, what, what it was above forty percent from three last year. I'm almost certain of it. Yeah, forty forty point two percent. And then at from the from two point, he shot fifty six percent. And I looked up and just said, how many players have shot forty percent from three on that volume and fifty six from two? And there was only over the last like ten years, there was only like ten names on the list. Gary Harris was one of them. Malik he had done it twice. Gary, Malik Beasley had just done it. Andre Guadalla had done it like three times. So. Of these 10 examples, these three players that we're talking about have all done it. And this is why, one, I think Iguodala would be a perfect fit in Denver is he's the great combination of he can knock down a set three-point shot from the corner, and he's just a great cutter, high IQ basketball player. He just knows where to be in the right spots. Gary Harrison and Malik Beasley, I think, are the same thing offensively. They're elite cutters. They're elite athletes. I mean, Gary Harris only 6'4", so he's a little bit shorter, but they're both above-the-rim finishers, acrobatic um, I think they're both really fantastic players, but you're right that yeah, Gary Harris is a much better defensive player than Malik Beasley. That's the big difference. But but they're both – Denver has that overlap in that you can replace one with the other and offensively you don't skip a beat. If I'm a GM in the league, I've called up Conley and said, I don't care which one, but here's who I got. And let me know when you want to get rid of one of them. But I'll that's take, why I'll take so, either one of the two. Surratt, and you were hitting on this a little bit um, just a second ago about they have to find a team that wants to take those players. Surratt just had a great piece. Surratt Sohi, I think I'm pronouncing her, her name right. I hope so. She, she just had a great piece about there's you there's almost two markets in the NBA. There's the contender market and then there's the like rebuilding market. It, I think every single team in the rebuilding phase that's not like, oh, this is our year, every single team would take Malik Beasley or Wancho Hernan Gomez. Um, and you maybe could talk yourself into like Torrey Craig even. There's teams because especially on the deal that he's on, there's such, such a cheap deal. So I think that Denver – I actually don't think it's hard for them to make a consolidation well, trade well, because so I think every team wants question. those guys. Which of those rebuilding teams has the player that Denver wants to consolidate for? Because that's the other part of this equation. Is like, there, there's two – there's Iguodala, but the other one to me that I keep coming back to is Minnesota. And it makes it especially tough because trading young, high upside, you know, solid players in division is always tough, as Denver can attest to. But Robert Covington fits that mold as well, in my opinion. Not as well as Iguodala because offensively, I just don't think he's as smart. But physically, he does a lot of the things that Denver needs. He would close for them at the small forward position. 
But are you willing to put, you know, two of your your, your best twenty two year olds in in, well, in a competitor's hands? Well, here, who, would, here, who, by the way, would fit so well around towns? Here, here's the other thing. I absolutely love the Covington Michael Porter Jr. fit. Theoretically, if Porter delivers, like if he comes up, that would be really fun. We should talk about him for sure. Oh, we're we're going to and we're going to in a bit. <laughs> um, I have a place for that. Uh, let, let, but let's move on. There was one question before that, which is just, and this will probably be really fast. Best newcomer to their team could be a draft pick, could be a signing. Is almost definitely Mike Conley. Um, Let me add one thing on Mike Conley, and then we can move off of him if we want to. I think the interesting one on Conley, and I know at 32 years old, it might not matter as much. But think of the wings he's played with in his career: Tony Allen, yeah. <laughs> Tayshon Prince, um, OJ Mayo. Might be the best wing player he's ever played with in his entire career. Well, Rudy least, Gay for a little while. Yeah, I would say it's probably Rudy Gay. And I mean, Tony Allen was an awesome player, but he was not an offensive force. He was. So what happens to Mike Conley when for the first time in his life he can play off the ball and have action that's going on on the other side of the floor that actually has a defense worried about it? I'm so yeah. excited. I'm unbelievably excited to see what, what Conley does for Mitchell and then what playing on a better team. like, And especially because Conley was on successful squads before. But none of them were like modern NBA offenses. Like this, this, it's going to be just a total sea change for him, and and the fact that we get to see it is is it's absolutely fantastic. And, and let me, uh, I I don't you know I, I'm assu- our listeners. He was in Memphis, right? Let's just concede that for a second. Last two years, he's averaged twenty one points a game. He has shot the uh, last two full seasons. So I'm taking out the year where he played twelve games. Um, he shot 46 and 44% from two. He shot 41 and 36% from three. His effective field goal percentage was an unnaturally high one year, 45, but he was at 40, 50, 55, excuse me. He was at 51 last year. I mean, Mike Conley can still really ball. Now he's, yeah, he's going to be a 32 year old point guard. So there should be some slippage, but he's, he's really can still evidently play. No arguments here. Yeah, it, it's, yeah it, neither here. Big, yeah. big Mike Conley fan. Yeah. He's great. <laughs> okay, so for the next question, which is very weird for this division, is the the one the last of the offseason review questions is the rookie you are most excited to see, and I'm gonna and most excited now who you think is gonna be best because that's not really what matters as much for rookies because it's it's always a long term play. And my top two for most excited to see are both Nuggets. One is. Michael Porter Jr., because he still counts as a rookie. He's my number one by a mile and a half in this division. And then yeah. Bull Bull, because I really liked Bull Bull, and there are reasons why he <laughs> fell, some of which you know were known at the time, some of which maybe were a little bit less, less public. But fascinating talents. Don't know how much of an opportunity they're going to get. But also, I, I, I get really interested sometimes when talented young players are on teams that are already successful because it can be more of a kind of a if they bring it, then they can be a part of it. If they don't, then the team isn't they're, they're not dependent on their success. Well, that's Denver to a T, maybe even too much so, because there's a real scenario in which Michael Porter Jr. just is not good. And how much how long do you stick with a guy when you have, as we just mentioned, so many other very good players that could easily fill that role. I mean, if Denver is a 500 team after, you know, 20 games and Michael Porter Jr. is just playing terrible, how much longer do they stick with him? And he's a prized important piece of, at least according to them, an important piece of what they're, what they will be down the road. But they're not at the phase where they say, oh, we're just going to let him play through 30% three-point shooting and and all this. So here's what's interesting about Michael Porter. He is the number one most interesting. I, I, I can't imagine another person winning this one because Michael, the, the possibilities for Michael Porter Jr. 
they cannot be more wide. He could be the best player on their team in five years. He could never play in the NBA. That's honest to God, the, the spectrum for him. What's weird is that Denver has spent all summer, for whatever reason, players, coaches, um, anybody that has seen front office people, anybody that has been watching him, they spent all summer hyping him up. I have gotten numerous texts from other people and even just watching him play. I don't see it. And I, and I feel like I'm the person taking crazy pills. I've never seen him beat anybody off of the dribble. I've never seen him do anything that gives makes me think, oh, this is a guy that's going to – the only thing he has, he's 6'11", he's an incredible athlete. I mean, he just – he has the body of a basketball player. And he has a beautiful shot, one of the best shots I've ever seen. But he's not, not talked about it as that guy. He's talked about as, oh, you should see him in scrimmages. He dominates. He makes us shut down the scrimmages and, and everything else. And I just have never once seen that with my own eyes. So I'm going to cheat. Uh, Jarrett Culver's obviously the answer. He's, you know, going to probably might start. Uh, I'm going to cheat. If we're talking about Michael Porter Jr., then I'm going to talk about a player who played 121 more minutes or 141 more minutes than Michael Porter Jr. last year. So I'm going to classify him <laughs> as a rookie. Uh, I think Anthony Sim- Simons is interesting. Uh, Rodney Hood will not stay healthy, as we talked about earlier. Mario Hazonia may not be a three. Uh, I think there's a chance that Simons, McCollum, and Curry <clears> – <throat> Excuse me, and Lillard play a lot together in the Curry model, the way that uh, they used hit Curry in the past, the way Shabazz Napier played with those guys. If Anthony Simons is good, I think he could play an awful lot. He seems to be a bona fide scorer, both when watching him through draft workouts as well as in the summer league. He's not seemingly great about awareness of where his teammates are yet as a young player, but that might not matter. So I think he's really interesting. The draft class player that will play the most amount of minutes this year is Jarrett Culver. The draft class player that will play the second most amount of minutes this year is Mia Oni out of Yale. Hmm. That's interesting. Where do you think he fits in the rotation? I just think when you look at that team, we talked about Moutier and Exum and how both of them might struggle and who are they. Ingles and Bogdanovich and Royce O'Neal, I think some of those are going to slide to the four. Some of those minutes are going to slide to the four. Mia Oni is a he is a relative adult for a rookie. He's 22 years old. He's six six to ten. He's the one of the three second round draft picks the Jazz signed to an NBA contract. He can handle the ball. The Jazz in Summer League had him running their offense. And maybe most importantly, and it's only Summer League, but Lonnie Walker got going and they put uh, Oni on him. Anthony Simons got going. They put Oni on him. He shut them both down. I think he ends up playing. I think he ends up playing this year. I think he will through, you know, if you just do injuries, right? Guys are, uh, guys miss uh, on average about 11 games a year. He is able to probably play any of two or three positions, and that's how rookies get time. So I would suspect that this kid out of Yale ends up getting some time. I don't know that he'll be great or anything of that nature, but I think he'll get the second most amount of minutes of anybody in the rookie class in, you, this, you, in this division. You, you had – I know he got he, – he's not there anymore, but you had a Grayson Allen take last year. I don't remember what it was, but I remember it was came in hot, kind of like this one's coming out of left field. What, what was it? Do you, do you remember what it was? No, it was my – well, Donovan was my hot take two years ago. I don't think I was particularly high on Grayson the, last year. I thought you had one about him playing a certain amount of minutes, and it, it you, you know you were you were just very very high on him. Anyway, I wasn't no, I to bring Gra- it up. I mean, I thought Grayson was going to have a better season than he did, but Mike. No, I think Mike. I think my take on Grayson Allen was I wasn't sure he could make shots. Oh, for some uh, reason my, my I remember from last Grayson year being, I was being very surprised because I thought you you thought he was. It wasn't that he was going to be good or bad. It's just that he was going to play a ton of minutes, and I thought, huh, oh, maybe. I, and we can go back and look. Um, uh, <clears throat> 
My, my thought on Grayson Allen was just that there were actually some funky numbers about open three-point shooting at Duke that were mm. disconcerting. And if he made shots, I thought he could really play, and he didn't turn out to make shots. If you he made had, shots from Memphis, he'll play. Well, I want to go back to MPJ for, for you, David, because you've had some opinions about him in the past. And just what, where do you stand on on him, and what are sort of your thoughts on him or expectations? I think I'm probably similar to you, and I don't know if I have a thought. I mean, he's just played so very little. Yeah. Um, and even in Missouri, he played so very little. Uh, I think the bigger issue for players like this, just in general, this is not a Michael Porter Jr. comment. The, and I understand 2017, he's the number two recruiting play, guy in the recruiting class. So there is certainly, and I, you know, he, he's a Seattle guy. So I've followed him. Um, sort of a Seattle guy, um, <laughs> uh, you know, on a good recruiting trip for a year. Um, I think the, I, I think the biggest challenge for players of this nature are to understand that they have teammates. The chances that he will be the singular best player on the floor every single time he gets on the floor, like he has been for every game of his entire life is slim. And so players of this nature often struggle to figure out how to play with teammates and his lack of playing in the last two years, I think makes it more difficult. So that's, you know, when you when you're that that's a take that's not Michael Porter Jr. in general, but I just think those players have a hard time adapting to figuring out how they're going to play in the league. Yeah, I think it's fair. That's one of like four concerns I have for him, but well, it's it's certainly on the on the list. I, I think I'm the only one of the three of us who has seen Michael Porter shined in person. Because uh, yeah. I, I was at the Hoop Summit in, I guess that would have been 2017 when he was. Yeah. And, and so the what will always stand out to me. So the, the, I watched the scrimmages and everything else. And on the, the last day of scrimmages, the U.S. does a night does a night thing and they play against what are generally called the Portland Generals. And so the Portland Generals, it's, you know, like kind of retired pros or college kids who are in the area who, you know, are, are just around like uh, Steve Blake played in the game. I think he played in the game against Michael Porter Jr. And so the the a good US team generally does pretty well against them. And Michael Porter Jr. was the best player on the floor and it was not close. He was better than all the US guys. He was better than all the Portland Generals. He just wrecked them. But the way he wrecked them was a little bit, you know, it, uh, this kind of ties in with what David was saying that I'm not sure how replicable it was because he was just dominating his guy one-on-one. And and granted, I had similar concerns, and I'm not comparing the two because that would be stupid. But I had similar concerns about Kevin Durant, and those concerns ended up being just bad on my part. You know, like, I didn't think that the scoring would translate, and it did. But Kevin Durant is the anomaly. Like, he he is just unbelievably talented. But what I think is interesting with Porter, so there are two big questions for me offensively, and then defensively, it's just, does he care? But offensively, (laughs) can he beat his cover consistently with the ball in his hands? And I think the answer could be yes more than some think. But then the second question is, is his jump shot as clean as it looks sometimes? And then when he's playing off ball, whether he's engaged or not, how how much do teams have to respect him there? And if he can check both of those boxes or even one of them really cleanly, I think he'll be fine. And Denver can use that really well. And I'm I, so I'm still really interested. I'm not sold in the way that I was going back to that hoop summit where I'm just like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. Like, I mean, there's, there's two back surgeries will do that to you. Two back surgeries will do that. (laughs) And, you know, like just thinking about how, how his game adjusts when you, cause I mean, yeah, in the hoop summit, he was dominating, but NBA players are so much better. You know, like you're, it's just, it's just a totally different world. It's the same thing I've talked about before with guys like OJ Mayo. David brought him up earlier that there are certain players who, 
this step up offensively and defensively of your teammates and your opponents makes what you do harder to sustain. And I think it's possible Porter is one of those guys, and that's why the jump shot becomes such a swing skill, because that's what allows players to transition from being dominant creators to being effective team players. I think so. To answer your question, question the first one no i cannot imagine him getting around a defender because i've literally never seen it happen i've seen him try you know we've watched scrimmages i've seen different tape or uh, you've watched him do the three on three before games i've never once seen him go around anybody and that's why i say i'm so hesitant about him maybe you know we only see a tiny fraction of it so maybe there is some of that there but i've just never seen it with my own two eyes the shot i at i do believe in i just i've seen him shoot in scrimmages and open gyms and empty gyms the guy, I think his shot is just gorgeous. It's textbook and goes in every time. So I, I, so I had 50% credit there. And the last thing I'll say about this whole thing about his mentality, it is there's no question that this obstacle that David presented is one of the big obstacles for him. But I will say I think he is very hyper aware of it because he has referenced it so many times. And the team has actually referenced it. Malone had a very interesting comment, I think, uh, whenever he had a pr- media availability most recently, maybe it was right before Summer League or something somewhere around there, where he said that that was the thing with Michael is that he's not naturally very like understanding about how to fit into the system that they play, but that he's making like slow progress on it. I mean, he was very – it was like one of those compliments that was – almost not a full compliment, but it just makes me think like everybody is aware that this is an issue. And if ever there was a place for him to sort of figure out the value of teamwork and ball movement, it would be here in Denver with this exact team. So we'll see. Do we have any track record on players to back surgeries? I know not every back surgery is the same, but is there any track record here? I can't imagine there's like a single example of a player that's played through that. I, I don't know of any that if somebody listening to this has any data, I would be happy to share it with not only these two individuals, but everybody else. So, yeah, we'll keep. We'll By keep the way, I want to compliment people that are still listening to us because not only have they listened to us for a whole hell of a long time, um, but we have spent a lot of time on Michael Porter Jr. And, <laughs> and if you I thank you very much for adoring I, us on both of those. I can tell you from from a lot of experience that everybody wants to hear about Michael Porter Jr. So he's that, a very is, popular yes. player. I, or as, talk as about. somebody who has who has a podcast partner who has talked about Michael Porter Jr., I can attest to that. <laughs> <laughs> He's like the fifth most popular player in the NBA right now. Yeah, and yeah, and also it's it's August. People will take the content where they can get it. So enjoy your Emmanuel Boudier. Um, I don't know. I've heard that there's a podcast network that still puts out content every day. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. But yeah, and that that's a very that's a very good point. I will I will shut up now. Except to say this. So uh, we'll transition into the season preview part. So we've been, I mean, we've done a lot of this already. We've been talking about how good these teams are. And uh, let's start with Adam on this one, which is just basically, I like to use regular season record. You can change the criteria, just explain what it is. But rank these teams one to five. I think Nuggets are number one. Uh, I I, I understand David's concern. And I think from an outside perspective, that's very, the whole like, getting stale with the, who you have is on the horizon for Denver, maybe as soon as the end by the end of this year, but Denver, it, it, they have built such, I know this word is overused. They've built such a great culture. And I don't think those, those issues are coming this year. I think they're coming the next year and Denver will have to get some like, you know, fresh blood in the pipeline, just some new people in. But I think at the end of last year, Mason Plumley, who was a backup center, should have, could play, could start for many teams, said this was the most fun year he's ever had. And almost every player on the team echoed that sentiment. So they're at least starting the season from a point of 
they feel like an AAU team in so many different ways. They're so young. They, they all get along so well. So I, I think Denver um, has a fantastic regular season. I think Utah's right behind them, narrowly behind them. Portland's number three. And then Timberwolves, Oklahoma City. I, 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 I'm going to go Timberwolves and then OKC just because I'm operating under the assumption that OKC is trying, not trying to be good and at some point will break up. I think they're more talented than Minnesota, but I think they'll win fewer games. So Vegas has it, the Jazz, then the Nuggets, then the Blazers, then the Wolves, and then the Thunder. Um, They might be right. They usually are. I think the Jazz and the Nuggets are interchangeable at this point. Probably, you know, one or two injury game here or there. Schedule, I'm I'm a big believer in how much the schedule impacts things. I think schedule will probably dictate which of those two teams is better uh, this year. I, I I find myself kind of yearning to go over on the Blazers at 46.5, as I talked about earlier, over the Timberwolves at 35.5 and over the Thunder at 31. Um, So I find myself kind of thinking that all of those three teams are going to be better than anyone realizes. Or not anyone, but just I think they're all going to – you know, the Thunder, I'm with what Adam just said. By the end of it all, I think they're going to drop. But I think they'll be – with the team the way the Thunder is constructed right now, they're going to be at 500 until they pull the plug. And it also might be harder for them to pull the plug because they have a lot of capable players. You know, like they're, I don't think they're trading Steven Adams unless they get the right offer and centers just aren't getting those kind of offers anymore. And Chris Paul is a hard player to trade. He makes a lot of money yeah. over the next few years. So maybe they move Gallo and that would hurt. But yeah, so my instinct, th- this ties in with one of the, I think is one of the most striking stats. So cleaning the glass measures they they do point differential and then they they you could call it luck you could basically but basically there's so you have an expected win-loss record based on your point differential and they throw a garbage time which makes it more predictive last season the utah jazz had the point differential of a 58 win team and won 50 and Mm. that was the single largest disparity in the league in either direction so for the sake of comparison last year the clippers exceeded their point differential their win their expected win total by 5.2 and on the negative end the next team was new orleans who had a whole bunch of stuff go wrong and they they were five they were basically five games under their expected differential so you think about that from utah's perspective so that basically in, in terms of differential they they were the you could say they were the third like they outscored teams by 6.7 points per hundred possessions that was the third best differential in the entire league behind the Bucks and the Warriors. I believe the Jazz are better. We'll see how meaningfully so. I think they'll be meaningfully better this year. So it wouldn't surprise me if Denver finished with a better record because these teams are pretty close. Denver's really, really good. And injuries, schedule, all those type of factors are so important. But I think, yeah. to me, the Jazz start the year as the favorites. And I wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me. And then it's kind of the same thing with Portland. Like, I have Portland third, but I could see them having a better year than I expect. And their offense, as David said, could be really good. Defensively, I don't think they'll miss they'll miss too much of a beat other than just, like, the strangeness of not having many forward defenders. And I think Portland, they're really well situated to be kind of like a, a Spursy team that beats all the bad teams and then loses some games against talented opponents just because they, you know, like when they just, they just can't stop a team someday, they're like making mid rangers or draining threes or something else. So I think, and I think all three of those teams will, they'll, they'll be doing well and it'll be dependent more on injuries than anything else. Let me uh, give a, I don't like that differential stat. I know everybody else does. Um, I think it disadvantages defensive teams. I agree with you. Uh, And so, what I think happens in this league is if you're good defensively, teams roll. 
And so Utah blows a lot of people out. The two things that are really hard to play in this league is if someone's playing defense and someone sets a lot of picks and runs a lot of handoffs. Utah runs the most picks, most handoffs in the league, and they play defense. And so I think that that stat is because teams roll against Utah and they just blow an inordinate amount of people out. And if you actually look and think about who the good defensive teams are, Boston's good defensively. They were 27th in that stat. OKC kind of fits this tough defensive. They're 24th. Golden State, Milwaukee was 25th and 26th. So Houston, who's not hard to play, was 12th. Portland, who's not hard to play, was 9th. I, I think that's a better indicator of just if it's a hard team to play and the burden of the schedule bears you. Now, uh, I'll flip on that one a little bit. I'm being a little bit of a pansy on this answer. If I'm being totally truthful, I actually think Utah's last year's Milwaukee. So I think Utah could be the number one seed in the West, maybe even by a little bit of a margin, and then not be a great playoff team. They play analytic. I was waiting for Adam to jump my throat. He didn't do it, so I will continue. Um, they play an analytically smarter game than any other team in the Western Conference. Milwaukee and Utah are actually playing a money ball game based on shot distribution that is far superior to the rest of the league and worthy of statistically somewhere between seven and ten wins in a season. And so I actually wow. think now that Utah is good – they, which I'm not entirely convinced that they were last year. Um, I think that they just played a money ball advantage over everyone else based on where they get their shots and what shots they allow. And what's interesting also about that is there are three teams in the league, two teams in the league that are way better money ball than everyone else and three teams that are somewhat. And they're Kenny Atkinson's, Mike Budenholzer, and Quinn Snyder's teams. And they've all been together at some point in their career when they were all in Atlanta. So I think there's a money ball game going on that has Utah and Milwaukee better. And on that note, I actually do if I really was to be honest I think Utah could win the West um, by some three or four games and then I'm just not convinced though that they would be the the same way you saw with Milwaukee that they have the firepower for a playoff series Denver's largely the same way. I'm, I'm much higher on them in, in the regular season than in the postseason. And and for maybe slightly different reasons, not necessarily the analytical thing, but just teams are defined by their weaknesses. And Denver has a glaring one right now at the wing position. So, By the way, Adam, not to go backwards, but I was looking back preparing for this on Denver's postseason. And I think I probably listened to you and Matt Moore every single day. I know I did in Houston. I was walking. I was listen, like went on the walk through the Arboretum listening to your guys show every single when you guys did Locked on Nuggets. Um, there was a level of, of glee at the time because it, you survived it, right? That Like, oh, my gosh, this almost became an unmitigated disaster and they got through it. But in retrospect, what is your thought on that whole playoff run by Denver and the fact that it took them to go seven games against a Spurs team that was, frankly, limited and that they lost to a Portland team without Nurkic? I think it was a perfect playoffs in a lot of ways. If they would have gone to the Western Conference Finals, I think it would have been too much. Um, you know, and so the, the funny thing is, is I think a lot of people look at it and go, oh man, do they think they're better than they are being around the team? They, they knew exactly what they were and they know what they are. So I don't think Denver walks away from that series necessarily like too big headed or, or anything, but also going seven games against San Antonio and winning that game six, or I'm sorry, that game five, that tough game five, tough game four on the road. They, they just had, they, there were so many when you talk about a young team and experiences, there was a lot of big experiences for them. Four overtime game, they lose and then bounce back and win in game four. To me, that team just grew up a ton in the playoffs. And all the other stuff, I think, doesn't actually matter as much as just Jokic now has a do-or-die game seven, two do-or-die game sevens under his belt, and he performed well in both of them. Okay. Good thought. 
here's my take on that. At the time, I was very frustrated because I thought Denver should have won that series by more. I would granted Derek White having that crazy game early in that series that re- did, did swing things for a little bit, and and you know Popovich had some good had some good wrinkles early on. But there is a, a truism that, with very few exceptions, teams stumble in their first appearance in the playoffs. Now, that stumble doesn't necessarily mean that they blow a series or anything like that, but it's just usually they, they underperform relative to expectations because they are adjusting to the format and like the way, that you, the way you handle opponents and the rest schedule and the travel schedule, and all these things are totally different. And I kind of expected a Denver stumble, and it was maybe a little bit more severe just because I thought so little of that Spurs team. But also the Spurs, I thought, stepped up and had some had some nice performances in that series. So I, I think that a lot of that stuff will be ironed out moving forward. But there is this parallel, which both of you brought up and I firmly agree with, that I like Denver and Utah significantly more as regular season teams. And another reason why I like them more as regular season teams is a very basic one, and that's altitude. You know, that's a huge advantage mm-hmm. that, these, that the, they have. And you can acclimate more in the playoffs, and they can win a couple of extra home games every year just because teams don't, don't just. And I mean, that's something that I've heard for years is that the only reliable home court advantage outside of team quality, you know, independent of that, is is altitude and the two teams that benefit the most from that happen to be the t- the two teams at the top of this division. That data is accurate, Mr. LaRue. They've changed it though, David. I don't know how much you looked, but I know Denver last year, they now made the rule where you can't fly from the co- from Sacramento or Portland to Denver on a second night of a back to back. And they, they balanced out. Yeah. They made this, this rule because the, the statistics on teams that played at Portland and at Denver or whatever were so just so bad. So I know that they've tried to balance these things out. And I know Denver last year, I want to say they had the highest percentage of back-to-backs at home, meaning they had to travel home to play a back-to-back. So I think they, I think for whatever reason, the schedule makers have had tried to tried to flatten this out at least a little bit over the last year or two. Well, that's well that, was the, that was the death equation. Going anytime you go west to east, in the, anywhere from Texas – Toward out from LA to Texas is brutal. Like yeah. it's interesting they got rid of that one. We I don't know if we did it last year. I don't have my schedule in front of us, but like we've had to do Utah Houston a few times, or Utah San Antonio or Utah Dallas. Like just forget it. Yeah. Like don't eat like like I swear that's where I would pop it if I was a team. I would just leave half my roster and be like forget <laughs> it. Well, especially when they do those like home game, road game, and then you go back home again for the next one. It's just oh Utah to LA and like we oh no oh. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was that was the reaction. The reaction I expected, and and it's an appropriate one. Uh, so, uh, oh, and I never finished out mine. So I would have OKC over. By the way, modest, move your freaking airport. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's true. Um, having the Illuminati won't won't allow them to. So, as as you heard, didn't Denver heard. already move their airport? Just they didn't move it the direction that David wants, like twenty years ago or something. <laughs> It's right on the border of Kansas, so it's 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 a ways away. <laughs> Good, well, you know it's nice though because when we play a team in Kansas City, when they add a team to Kansas City, we'll just be able to drive. It'll be faster than going to Stapleton. There you yeah. go. So all right, okay. So I my last two just to, just for completeness, I would go OKC then Minnesota. I agree with Adam's point that I think OKC will end the year worse than Minnesota, but I think they'll start it better. And also, more than half of the year occurring before the trade deadline is another factor here that they'll. I think they'll just get more games under their belt, and it could work. I think. It, there's a, a greater possibility that it just starts better and they just keep it largely together. Okay, question number two. And I remember this being an interesting one for us last year, and it ended up producing some compelling fruit because you had the you had four of the five teams here make the playoffs, and that's going into the 1920 season. How many of these teams make the playoffs? 
So the easy answer is three, but something happens every year where one of those eight teams that we all think are playoff teams are not going to come together. And I think the interesting one that's floating around here is that right now the Vegas odds have the Spurs at 46 and a half, 47, 46 and a half, 47 wins, somewhere is that. So that would be the eighth team. And the ninth team is down as low as 40 or 40.5. Hmm. So that's a huge gap. Like there's no playoff race here at all, according to Vegas, but in the Western Conference, if one of those eight teams has something go wrong, like Minnesota did last year and slides down that night, that last playoff spot could be a 41 win team. Wow. And if it's a 41 win team and that team falls apart early, I think both Minnesota and Oklahoma City get to suddenly have a chance. I don't think Minnesota as much, but like I said earlier, I think Oklahoma City's a 500 team when they pull the plug. Well, what happens if the Spurs don't click or Dame, I don't want to say who, but something happens, right? And Portland's not right or the Lakers aren't right or right. And suddenly one of those teams yeah. is below 500 and OKC sitting there sitting on December 15th at 8, 17 and 17, but in playoff positioning, do they pull the plug? Under all those circumstances, you also have maybe Sacramento or New Orleans being in the fight. So I, I, you're you're absolutely right that the scenario exists, and and OKC could be the team, or even Minnesota maybe could be that team. But you're talking about the scenario has to happen first for there to be an opening, and then they have to beat out the other teams that, in my opinion, are just as good as them. Like not good teams, but right on the fringe. So I would say no. I well, think it's so, three. And so- I. To me, I think David's making an interesting point, but I think there's a second part of it, which is I think there's a pretty good chance that one of those top eight falls out, injuries, ineffectiveness, there are a myriad reasons why that can happen. But I also think that one of the teams below that, like that, you know, that group that's around 40-41, one of those teams is going to win 46 or something like that. You know, just, just somebody's going right. to exceed expectations. And I'm a little bit less confident. OKC could possibly do it. Just we, we, we all like their roster if they keep it together. But, you know, I think there, there's also a solid chance that that's Dallas or that's Sacramento or that's New Orleans. And, like, I don't really see that necessarily in Minnesota, especially because they're really shallow. And so then they become health dependent, too. So, like, I think that the, the logic of it is sound. But I like saying, OK, can this team win 46 in the West? Like, that's usually a good line for me, 44 to 46. And if I don't feel good about that, I'm probably not going to pick a team to make the playoffs. And I like OKC. I like them more than most. But the line. I'm from- absolutely certain Oklahoma City is going to make the playoffs. Go, Oklahoma. Thunder fans, get all your expectations up and believe you're going to make the playoffs <laughs> and think you're going to make the playoffs, Thunder fans. You're going to be able to do it. Even though you've lost Durant and Westbrook and Paul George and James Harden, you're going to be fine, Thunder fans. I promise you, you'll be fine. Eighth playoffs, but here you come. Get all your hopes up and cherish it. Your ulterior motives are interesting, David. <laughs> It would also be an unbelievable story if the, they make the playoffs after losing Durant and then make the playoffs after losing Westbrook. Like it would be that, an unbelievable story when they have 9,000 people in their arena next year also. No comment. Um, <laughs> because th- those, those you know, my, my history with supporting the Sonics under, know, know how I feel about this. And not, nothing against I'm just, OKC fans. I'm just having I – mean, again, this is my – I'm just trying to make people laugh. You're just, try, you're, just, you're just trying to get you're just trying to get hate mail from Oklahoma City. I understand, David. You want you want you want the you want the cupcakes for yourself this year. But- I, I, I'm sen- I'm nice. I'm sending it. Anybody who who sends me a hate mail at, at Lockdown Sports for this, I'm going to send them a huge thank you for listening. Okay, awesome. <laughs> so 
uh, last question, and I actually think it's genuinely difficult for me with this division. I'll see if you guys have more positives here. Because, like, so the last question is, what players do you think will break out? And that can be any level, so it doesn't have to be become a star. It can be, you know, maybe they were a rotation player last year, and now they're a starter. Like, there are lots of different ways that players can do this. But I actually don't have that many guys for this division, partially because a lot of guy, a lot of players did really well last year. Like, the Nuggets, so many players yeah. succeeded that I don't really know if they have a breakout player. So I'm interested to see if you have any players that you really like. I mentioned Towns. I think Towns has a really big year. Just, I mean, statistically, I think he does some impressive stuff. Um, Gary Harris, we talked about already, but I think he's a lot better than what he showed last year. He was injured for most of it. People don't don't realize he got injured about a month and a half into the season. Played through a lot of it, but just his all of his numbers fell off a cliff. Um, those would probably be the two I, w- I would look at to to really stand out. And then Ed Davis, we talked about as well, who I'm high on. I don't know if he'll have his numbers will be great because he's not going to play. I don't think that many minutes, but but he's a really good player. Uh, I think Donovan Mitchell breaks out. I mean, I just think the space oh, yeah. on the floor is going to be incredible. And I think he, if he is going to be the star that a lot of people think he's going to be, this is when it happens. If you kind of yeah. look at Derrick Rose, he went from year two to year three. Clay Thompson went from year two to year three. Dwayne Wade actually improved a great deal year two to year three. That's when most players make that jump. So I actually think that the guy who breaks out and is different is Donovan Mitchell. And if I believe the Jazz are actually the number one seed in the West, like Milwaukee, he better. What breaks um, out? So just give me the number because he averaged 24 last year. Yeah, so I mean, it's right. It's a heart. What's that breakout? Is he still taking nineteen shots, twenty shots a game, and he gets consistent, and so it's suddenly twenty-eight? Maybe. Okay. I don't think his. I don't think everyone's talking about his shots and his usage are going to go down, and I'm not sure why. Mm-hmm. I think the difficulty of his shots and the difficulty of his usage goes down, but I still want him shooting. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I can see gonna it. Be, it's going to be interesting that the shot distribution and also if Mitchell takes the reins of the non Conley minutes, I think that's going to open up some shots for him as well. And I could absolutely see that coming. How Quinn Snyder manages the rotation. I'll throw out a couple other guys that are not really in the, the same mold as Donovan Mitchell, who I, I echo those ideas. Anthony Simons. I think this could be a nice year for him and Portland. I think they need a, a bench guard to, to break through. He could do that. I could also see this being a reminder year that like Kent Bazemore is a legit NBA player because he's been, even last year when Atlanta, I think they exceeded expectations for some people. Bazemore wasn't as central to that as I kind of thought he could have been. And Towns, I think is an interesting, I just, I just love. Bing, 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 bing. He's so good. I mean, he's such an unbelievable That's the one, guys. That's the one I kept going back to in my prep. So post-All-Star break last year, Carl Anthony Towns averages 28 points, 13 rebounds, and four assists. You go back to him in his second year in the NBA, he took 18 shots a game. Inexplicably, the next year he only takes 14, and last year he only takes 17, but that's only because he starts taking him in the second half of the season. He's generally been healthy. He's only missed five games in four years in his entire NBA career. He took the year he he was pro he was ready to take the year two to year three jump and they screwed up the team. Agreed, I think Carl yep. Anthony Towns it could be in Minnesota could be a you know if if Carl Anthony Towns goes and they get that back then that's the team we should we've underestimated this whole time. But Carl Anthony Towns like that February he had of thirty one points and fourteen rebounds he followed it with a twenty seven point and thirteen rebound March. I don't know why that's not his entire season. He, yeah, here, I agree. Here's a stat I I'm wanna, super I wanna high on. Carl Anthony Towns after the All Star break, twenty games, sixty four percent true shooting on thirty three percent usage, twenty eight <laughs> points, thirteen point four rebounds, three point eight assists. 
Like, he is insane. He is just an unbelievable yeah. offensive. And, and his combination as a scorer and as a as a distributor. And Ryan Saunders, you know, we talked about the question marks about where, where he where he stands as a coach. And he Saunders has had, you know, since he officially got the job from Rosas and everything else, he has had the entire summer to figure out what to do. And if if I were given this roster, and I admit that I'm not the most talented coach in the world, that's never been my job, but what makes Minnesota special, what gives them a ceiling, is Carl Anthony Towns. And so I would be spending the entire summer saying, how do I maximize Carl Anthony Towns and not maximize, you know, like Wiggins and some of these other guys? And that could lead to Carl Anthony Towns just going even further than he did when Saunders took over. Who's the best player in the division? I mean, my answer is Jokic, but I'm, I, I'm admittedly extremely biased about it, but I, t- I still think it's him. Towns, Towns, is, Towns is right. Towns is, uh, is up there in this conversation for me. He's, his career has been a little bit cursed, I think, so far being in the situations that he's been in. I'm going to go with Dame, but Towns, if we're talking talented as opposed to best, I think Towns is in that conversation, and it would be not surprising at all for him to convert between the two this year. Yeah. This year, I mean, and yeah. And then the you know I always point this out I don't I don't think he's the best player in the conference but um, offense and defense in the regular season has the exact same value to wins and there might only be one player in this conference who automatically or in this division who automatically puts your team in the top five either offensively or defensively and that's Gobert yeah absolutely and he's he's an un- and, and I think Gobert's offense is also a little bit underappreciated like it is he is dependent as a talent but almost every center is and being really good at what he does is incredibly valuable. I, I love a good but, old man, and he's a it's very like good it's old like man. there's two David Locks on this podcast. I don't I don't know how much more I can take. <laughs> why, why are there two? <laughs> the, well, I'm hearing I'm hearing Danny make the uh, David Locke oh, argument. I, I have so. <laughs> I, I have stumped for Rudy Gobert longer than David Locke has stumped for Rudy Gobert. So he can yeah. he I, I'm ha- I'm happy to have him on the train. If you wanted my hot take of like my made up hot, I mean my hot take that the Jazz are this year's box is pretty hot take. Um, I actually think Gobert could average twenty points a game. Hmm. See, the last time I made, the of, last time I made fun of you for one of those, it was Donovan Mitchell, and I was wrong. So I, I don't think that I should do that again. Do you want my thought? Do you want me to back this one up, or you want me to just move on? I, under, I understand the theory behind it. I, don't, I think I get it, too. Makes sense to me. It's just took nine shots a game last year and averaged 16 points a game. It's just a yeah, he'll get, 20, he'll get like two more of those like easy, wide open, just dropped it off to him, he dunk it. He'll right. get, he he'll get se- two more of them. He shot 70% without favors on the floor the last two years. So I'm looking at it, and granted, Rudy Gobert is a, a much more talented like player than him. But I think, God, see, like, okay, so DeAndre's never averaged more than 13 a game, and uh, yeah, I mean, because and Rudy's never averaged more than 16 last year. It's possible. I, I don't expect it, but it's possible. And I've learned not to not to go after David for jazz <laughs> things that he knows well. No, I mean, I'm making that one up. That one's not like what I knew. I've known some things last a few times we've done this show where I <laughs> either stayed quiet about certain players or um, talked about certain players. I don't know. I, I mean, I was I prep, prep for the show no differently than you guys did. And when you run the per 36 minutes on fi- Gobert without favors, it gets really interesting. It, it, it definitely does. And the added But you can't that, have all three center all-stars in the West coming out of the same division. Well, I mean, or, or all three all three all-NBA centers coming out of the same I division? Mean, maybe. I mean, Embiid's unbe- there are a lot of un- other unbelievable players, but, I mean, it's this division's going to be fascinating. I, I do think there's a real chance that we'll think Carl Anthony Towns is the answer to that question by the end of this Entirely year. possible. Next year, talk, I asked that same question. Yeah. Um, well, we'll, we may answer that question um, the same way, but who knows? Well, uh, Rudy Gobert per 36 minutes, by the way, without favors on the floor. 
uh, only 9.6 shot attempts, 69% shooting, 18.5 points a game, 14, 15 rebounds a game. Now, if Gobert averages 19 and 15 that, with three block shots, um, and that would be real. And defensive player of the year. Well, if, he, if Rudy Gobert is defensive <laughs> player for the third straight year, the Jazz are great, right? Like if the yeah. Jazz with their offense now have Rudy Gobert as the defense player of the year, which means that Rudy Gobert, they're the top five, top three defensive team in the league, then they are the Milwaukee Bucks of last year. Yeah, I, I think there's, I think it's underappreciated how likely it is that that Utah has the best record in the Western Conference. I think there's a pretty, a meaningful chance of it. You want my next Homer Jazz take? Go want, for it. Want is a strong word, but sure. <laughs> okay, pick and roll. Choose who you want to have the ball: Conley or Donovan Mitchell. Rudy Gobert setting the pick. Bogdanovich in one corner, who's a 45% corner three shooter. Ingles in the other corner, who's a 45, and if he's in the right corner, 50% corner three-point shooter. Run the pick and roll with Conley and Gobert. Donovan's lifted. Who are you leaving? You got to help, right? You, Gobert's rolling. Conley's coming. You got to help. You got to bring well, a third and, guy and one of the to big, guard the pick one, and roll. Who are you bringing? Big, one of the big problems with that also is that my instinct would be to pull off the other guard, but the problem there is that you're pulling a guard off of them, and they're not as useful of a help defender. Oh, interesting. I actually think Denver, with their kind of trapping style, the pick and roll, which not very many teams do anymore, will be the best of anyone dealing with that. Well, yeah, because you, you, force, you force Gobert to get the ball and make a decision. That, that, I think that's the best answer. Yeah. So we've already been talking. Come on, Denver we- lover, Adam Modest. We're this deep in the podcast. Give me your nugget love to counter that. Well, I mean, nearly enough Jokic <laughs> love in this podcast. Let's... You know, I don't. I don't feel. I don't feel the need to like hype Jokic anymore. I feel like he arrived. You know, the, the triple, the game seven triple okay, doubles haven't okay, even really he, been here, mentioned in this here, podcast. Here's the nuggets thing. Brief side mention. Here's I, the, I will say Jokic MVP odds. I like him a lot. I, I like. Here's the one thing I'll say about Denver. This is the first year where I, I, it depends on how much they give Michael Porter Jr. minutes and all that stuff. But I don't think you can put a bad lineup out there, and that's and I think that's really big in the NBA now that yep. there was always a Moutier or a Lyles <laughs> or just some player where it was like, oh man, we have to buy these minutes. Denver has ten guys, two deep at, at every spot. That I, I'm like, yeah, I like that lineup. You can't build a bad one. As, as I'm a as big said, believer in three through ten depth. You have the best three through ten depth in the NBA for as, sure. As, as soon as you said no bad lineups, I said, okay, either Adam's making a Moody reference or I am, and <laughs> and thank you for doing so. Uh, the, I think it could be a Wilson Chandler reference too, so, frankly, for a for, lot of years. Yeah, so it could, could definitely be. I, I think this is. I think this is the last question for the group, and we don't need to make this long. We've already been talking for an hour and forty-five minutes. Uh, how how is everybody? How predictions? What if we do this podcast a year from now? How is the Jamal Murray extension looking? It could go either way. I, I lean towards it looking not great. I don't think it's going to be a Wiggins type deal, but I've I've always been a little bit lower. I mean, we didn't talk about Jamal Murray at all, which is kind of interesting because he's the key to Denver's success, I think, more than any other player. But um, I I still feel like he's going to be eighty percent of that contract. But I could be wrong. I mean, he was he was really good at his best in the playoffs. He had back to back thirty four point games. I mean, he had some big time moments in the playoffs. I'm a pretty big Jamal Murray fan. I think he's going to be fine. I think the deal was the right deal, particularly with what the market was next year. There's no need to screw with him. Uh, I think he took a bigger jump last year than people realized going from 13 to 16 shots a game. That's a huge jump, and so his efficiency slid a little bit. I think his efficiency will return to what it was in his second year in the NBA, and then he's really, really good. I think he and Jokic will continue to get better at that. Um, And if Gary Harris has the season, I suspect, I think that that will relieve the burden on him. So I I think 
I think he'll be fine. I think Denver and Utah, by the time we're done with this, I'm going to say that Denver and Utah are the one, two seeds in the West. I think but they, that are. they end up, but one of the two is going to end up with the Warriors in the first round and go out. <laughs> yeah. You're going to like be the one or two seed and you're going to get the seventh seed Golden State Warriors with Clay Thompson healthy and ready for the playoffs. If we're staring that down the barrel of the gun next year, David, are you are you going to be upset if, if Utah does what Denver did this year, which is rest guys at key moments to try to position themselves? Are you going to be saying, you know what, maybe we don't need to play this tough team in the first round. We can get the easy route. No, I, I wasn't upset with it then. I thought we should have done it. I thought we should have once we lost – once we there was a game in there we lost we should have lost the last two um, to avoid Houston. Yeah, people were up in arms at Denver last year because they wanted them to go get smacked by the Rockets, and I thought it was pretty hilarious. I thought the Jazz would have been in the Western Conference Finals if they didn't see the Rockets. They would have. They I, I, would have. I was up in arms about it because I didn't want Utah and Houston to face in the first round. It wasn't so much about Denver uh, doing what was bad for them. It was that I didn't want yeah. the three best teams in the Western Conference on the same side of the bracket. And that because that led to, uh, you know, what happened and an exhilarating Portland Golden State Western Conference finals matchup. Oh, my God. Well, at least that one was short. (laughs) That was kind of nice. I was ready for a short series at that point. But you know what's you know, what's really fascinating about this to the credit of all three of the front offices, Portland, Utah and Denver. I don't think any of them allowed the playoff seating and playoff results to impact their offseason. Agreed. Agreed. Yep. Well, yeah. like Utah, Utah pulled the plug. I think they were going to, no matter what happened on the Favors Gobert combo. Portland reacted to the Western Conference Finals as understanding they got a break, and Denver held the thing together like they should have with a slight upgrade. In, not a slight, actually. I think Grant might be a big upgrade. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that it's been more prevalent in the public stuff from Olshay than it probably was privately. And you know, like the the, the Lillard extension, I, I think they pushed it a little bit hard. I mean, it's a ton of money for his mid thirties, but I understand it. You know, it's one of those moves that I, I'm I'm insulated because it's not my actual job. Whereas, like for Olshay, I totally understand it. It's the owner's money, so if the owner wants to pay it, so be it. Uh, and with CJ, you know, three years, a hundred million for a guy who hasn't been an All Star is a lot. But we're also getting into a new cap environment, so maybe that's maybe that becomes more normalized with time. But I agree with you that you know. Portland, it's going to be so fascinating to see how we think about their forwardless roster six months from now. You know, like, did it work? Did it not work? Were they able to, if it didn't work, were they able to make moves? Because there's a parallel here with Houston last year where I didn't like what Houston did, but I did like how Maury was able to react to it. And I'm and Olshay could end up doing the same thing where if it doesn't work, like I think it might not, at least defensively, then it, they, they will have the ability to rebound. So it's going to be interesting. Mm. Zach, Collins, know, Zach rap, Collins. My, my biggest take. My biggest takeaway from this is that Minnesota and Oklahoma City are the teams that were all classified as non-playoff teams, not very good. Minnesota might have the best player in the conference. <laughs> Oklahoma City has one of the great point guards we've ever had. Danilo Gallinari is really damn good. Like I, like yeah. this to me sums up. People are underrating the 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 T Wolves and the and the Thunder. Those both those teams are better than the general the general murmurings that I'm hearing. Which is why I think all of the teams Clippers, Lakers, Jazz, Nuggets that have all these high expectations are it's going to what's going to be most interesting is how those teams deal with being 14 and 10 to start the year. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point. Love that point. Well, I would ask if there was anything more we should discuss, but I, I'm worried we would go for another hour. And as much as I would enjoy that, I do value your time at least. A, at least there a seems bit. to be fluid to my eyeballs right now, so we probably should wrap this up. Yeah. So, <laughs> so thank you guys so much for taking time. It was an absolute pleasure as always. Thanks so much, Danny. See you guys. Look forward to it.
Thanks again to David and Adam for coming on. You can listen to David as a radio voice of the Utah Jazz. You can listen to Locked On NBA, Locked On Jazz, and all the other great work that he does. Or you can follow him on Twitter at Locked On Sports, L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N-S-P-O-R-T-S. And you can read Adam at Denver Stiffs. You can listen to him on Locked On Nuggets. And you can follow him at Adam underscore Maris, A-D-A-M underscore M-A-R-E-S. Love having them on and their perspective on just so happens. I mean, when we started this, they were not the top two teams in the division. But at the moment, I feel they are. I think both of them agree with me there, while we might have a little bit of disagreements about the order. And really, I mean, it's not necessarily going to be as awesome of guests, though they always, I, I always intend for it, but just because of our chemistry after all these years. But this is what the Division Capsule podcasts are. In-depth on five teams, feel like you really get a sense of where we were, where we are, where we're going. And I'm going to do that for all six divisions between now and the start of the 1920 regular season. I have basically all of the guests lined up for it now, so it's about recording them, getting them out. Really excited about some of them. It's going to be, well, excited about all of them, but um, the ones that are lined up, I'm, I'm really excited about because I'm not as nervous as some of the other ones. But that's going to be a dominant thing. Also going to do over-unders with Arturo Galetti. And that's really, honestly, I mean, obviously, if other things great come up, I will I will do them as shows, whether that's adding episodes in a week or just delaying things, moving them around. Anyway, if you want to support the show, there's so many different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player you're choosing. You can subscribe. You can download. That's super important for the show because it comes out on different days of the week. You can't get into a rhythm with it. So just subscribe. It pops in to your podcast player whenever you can. And then leaving a rating, leaving a review is so huge. Apple Podcasts, if you have it, otherwise, whatever you want. And if you want to be super awesome, both places. And the most important thing for this show and any other that has them is to check out our advertisers. BetOnline.ag, use that podcast one promo code. It both gets you a 50% welcome bonus, which is fantastic. But also it tells them you came from us, and that's very important moving forward. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. I try to get back to people, but I make no promises there. My promise is to read it. Real Jam Radio will be back next week. I do not know exactly which episode it will be. We're in the process of figuring that out, And but it, I'm excited about it. It'll be awesome, whatever it is, and we'll be ready for it. And then if you can listen to Dunked On, Nate and I are still going about three times a week right now, and then I'm going to get back into writing. Already wrote on the Draymond Green extension at The Athletic. You can check that all out there. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW. At our fully accredited, world-class treatment center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. You will also benefit from specialized programs, 24-hour medical care, and the comfort of our outstanding facilities. Let us help you. 
We will answer your call 24-7 and can get you into treatment as soon as today. If outpatient care is right for you, you can receive a same-day assessment and attend therapy in person or virtually. And because we accept most private insurance plans, you get premium care without the premium price. Don't wait. Start your new year. Start your new life today. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.